Welcome back to America Speaks. We are delighted to have Maria Jose Mendez on as our guest today, and this conversation will give us a stronger sense of the history of violence that is raging across Central America. Maria came to the United States from Honduras in 2006 to study at Vassar College. She is presently doing her doctorate thesis at the University of Minnesota. Her dissertation looks at the effects of transnational gang violence in Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and she places this phenomenon in the center of the lives of the people who suffer, witness, perpetrate, and configure it to examine its role in constituting relations of power in Central America. She has conducted multi-site fieldwork and she has as well done research, speaking to former gang members, local experts on gang phenomenon, human rights activists, and government officials, and internally displaced peoples and migrants. Maria, welcome to America Speaks. And joining us today is our producer, Kim Langbacker. Thanks. In 1999, I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala at the end of the Civil War. And then I had this experience in Lake Aditlan with a well-known drug lord who very flippantly told me that I should lap up the beauty of Guatemala now because great upheaval was expected. Guatemala was so vulnerable. It was perfect for our drug bosses and cartels, etc. What are your thoughts about where it started to really spiral out of control? That's a very difficult question, mostly because Central America just features across the headlines, right, as the one of the most violent regions in the world. This portrayal, I think, tends to obscure what has been a long, long history of violence in the region. You know, if we send the Wayback Machine to the 1900s, you know, what we see is that coercive uh, apparatuses in the region have had tremendous effects on the formations of power. And what I'm really talking about is in the early uh, 1900s, when the agro-export industries starts picking up, especially in, in El Salvador and Guatemala, what you have is that the landed elites and, and the military enter into alliances to really set up a very labor repressive system. It was violence that was basically lubricating it in, in order to have labor availability, for instance. And so so we see that one of the worst examples of state violence in the 1930s, you have General Martinez in El Salvador ordering the massacre of more than 30,000 indigenous peoples, so-called communists. And these were people who really standing up to the cruelty and just the injustices of the coffee industry. This is the 1930s, right? This is one of the worst massacres of modern history in Latin America. And then these uh, coercive apparatuses that in some ways you know, are also a, a legacy of colonialism, they get refined during the counterinsurgency period. This is when the U.S. comes in. I mean, the U.S. came in much before, right? I think about the banana enclaves in Honduras, but mm -hmm. during the counterinsurgency period, the Cold War, what we see is that the course of apparatuses that already existed 
they take them in a more organized, a more widespread and, and a more lethal character. For instance, in December 1965, you have the State Department dispatching this U.S. security advisor, uh, John uh, Longan. They send him to Guatemala to, to create a small action unit to mastermind uh, some campaign against the so-called terrorist. And this is literally the first death squad in Guatemala. And from then on, what you have is paramilitary groups, clandestine structures of violence workers that are created and that are enabled by the the security apparatuses of these three countries. You know, these were workers that were responding to a U.S. security agenda and to elite interests in, in crushing movements that challenge inequalities in the region. So this culture of impunity, of illegal practices that the state initiated by subcontracting out these covert tasks this was all a accompanied proliferation of the criminal operations that you find in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. What you find really is also a legacy of the counterinsurgency period because drug trafficking, contraband, kidnappings, extortions, they flourish during this period because there's a culture of impunity. I mean, literally can do whatever you want, especially with U.S. sponsorship is in some ways, you know, creating these parallel structures. There's so many strains to pick up on. So that's sort of what I really just want to point out that what we see happening in the region is in cooking up for many years so that when one wants to analyze what's happening, one would have to reference to this longer history. Well, you know, Martin Sheen in our first interview has a terrific quote. There is not a single nation in this hemisphere whose citizens have come here that was not interfered with militarily, economically, (laughs) culturally, in their countries where we have destroyed their cultures, we have robbed them of their resources, we have destroyed their political systems and installed horrible dictators, military coups and so forth from from the tip of of South America all the way to the Texas and California border. There is not a single country that the present immigrants have flowed from that those people were not personally and directly affected by our illegal, immoral interference in their sovereign countries over the last 200 years. Let's back up a bit. You took an opportunity at the beginning of your thesis to go into the field and interview gang leaders and community experts. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the ex-gang members that you interviewed? Um, Sure. The very first former um, gang members that I interviewed were female gang members, actually, in a prison close to the capital city of Honduras. I happened to visit this prison with a human rights person who's also a friend, and she was interested in looking at how children actually grow up in these prisons. I don't know about prisons in other countries, but at least in, in this prison, the children could stay up until they were four so that they would be with their mothers. You know, so when we went there, I had the opportunity to talk to some former female gang members. At first, I I thought they wouldn't want to talk to me because the way that they're so deeply stigmatized, not only by, you know, middle classes, but really by journalists, by politicians, by everyone. I would say even by academics. It makes them very wary to talk to people about their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that was a bit difficult at first. Then I was actually very lucky. They were extremely generous 
generous with their stories. And you know what you hear, and this has been very much studied by Central American academics and also other academics here in the in the U.S., but, you know, they give you a sense, right, of the socioeconomic background from where they come, you know, are usually... Uh, people who come from uh, marginalized neighborhoods in Honduras, in Central America, I would say, you know, people facing all kinds of lack of employment, uh, precarious living situations for the woman specifically. And this was a pattern that I noticed from the ones I talked to. Many, many had suffered sexual violence before entering the gang. And for some, and I wouldn't say this was the only reason, right, but they mentioned that it was you know, one of the big reasons why they wanted to join the gang was because they wanted to feel empowered, mm -hmm. which in some ways really troubles also this view that has been very much propagated right now in the U.S. in relation to gangs that they're all about raping women. I mean, which they do, and I'm not saying they don't. It's just that the fact that there's women who choose to also join them because they feel empowered and in some ways feel that society is even more machista, uh, more patriarchal than the gang, you know, and it troubles these views. So the gang members that you interviewed, were they, for the most part, women? So at this female prison, yes, they were all women. I also interviewed uh, former male gang members in, in El Salvador and, and, and Guatemala. Again, you see patterns of the socioeconomic background, which has been very well documented. There are people who are, who are coming from the urban slums of Central America, right? I think for the men, there's all kinds of things that attract them to gangs, if that's something you want me to discuss. Yeah, I, I would like to sort of unpack this a bit. Kim, do you have thoughts on this? Just jump right in, okay? You just said something really interesting, and I think it dovetailed very closely with young people who join gangs here in the United States. And Tish and I have both been in areas in Los Angeles where the gangs are very territorial, very violent. And, you know, when you have these conversations with them, it is about this sense of feeling empowered. It's about all of the things that you would sort of assume, lack of opportunity, perhaps even generational, their sort of sense of self and who they are hasn't even developed yet. And somebody comes to them and says, hey, you can do this and we need you. And now you're powerful and strong because now you have a gun in your hand and you're a part of something. You're a part of this family. Very similar Hearing you talk about that was kind of like, wow, you've got these two very different cultures, but they're very similar in how they recruit these folks that continue on this violence. Right. I would add that, at least in, in Central America, they don't even need to recruit them sometimes. You have children from the slums who start imitating the gang lifestyle when they're really small. And they find it attractive in ways that, you know, the schools, the churches, uh, the government don't seem to provide an alternative. And they tell you that the gang became my family. It's a cross-border reality, I think, especially for urban youth who are very marginalized. Honestly, Maria, this isn't new. These asylum seekers have been coming into this country for decades. So let's talk about what are these families fleeing? They're fleeing violence. They're also fleeing a way of life that is becoming ingrained in the system. So what I want to get a sense of is when we are looking at this setup of what is now becoming the new normal 
for Honduras and El Salvador, Guatemala, and the regions that really don't see any kind of alternative impact to uh, mitigating this out-of-control violence. Of course, you're going to see a refugee influx coming up north. It just makes sense. I mean, it's almost akin to what we have been witnessing tragically in Syria. But of course, as you say, it's not a war zone, but it is a war zone, right? That's how people describe it. So what I'm trying to get out here is this notion that we are getting fed through this Republican ideology that all of these asylum seekers are coming up illegally with their families, with their children, and they're barraging our borders. You know, we are in a real humanitarian crisis, and the reason it exists is because of instability and poverty. And I think we see this so much in Central America because of all of the wars and all of the conflicts that we have fueled in the region. So once again, I think it's going to be incumbent on us returning to some semblance of humanity in the United States, which is looking pretty shaky right now. But I want to thank you so much, Maria. I want to first of all ask you if anybody out there has any questions for you, how would they reach you? They can send me an email to mende184 at umn.edu. So it is M-E-N-D-E, mende184 at umn.edu. That's my university address. From that, I say America Speaks thanks you so much for the work you are doing. And it's just been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Tish, for having me and Kim. (laughs) If you have protested for anything in the past 18 years, you very well may be in my book, I Protest. Please go to my website, tishlampert.org. That's www.tishlampert.org. And see if you can find yourself in my book. You can also follow me on Twitter at TishLampertCom. That's at T-I-S-H-L-A-M-P-E-R-T-C-O-M. And find me on Instagram, T-I-S-H underscore L-A-M-P-E-R-T underscore O-R-G. And I want to invite everyone to go to Tish Lampert's America Speaks on Apple Podcasts, where you can find our archived episodes. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz, Oscar Batista, and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at americaspeakspodcast at gmail.com and tell us what you thought of today's episode and come back for our next episode of America Speaks. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. (laughs) 